stories to you. Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. It's my pleasure to be hosting this conversation with Professor Danielle Selmeyer as part of the festival's Stories to You series. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm fortunate enough to be visiting, the traditional country of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and welcome Aboriginal people who are listening to this conversation. I'd also like to thank you for your ongoing support of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. I'm excited to be visiting Adelaide for the Writers' Festival. I've missed being among writers and, uh, and also among book-loving audiences. And I'm especially glad to have this opportunity to speak to Danielle in person after we realised we'd both be here for the festival. We're going to be talking about her book, Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future, which is published by Penguin Random House. It's a deeply personal and philosophical exploration of the impact of the 2019-2020 bushfires and what it means to live ethically in a climate-changing world. Danielle has an interesting background. Her passion for psychoanalysis and social and political transformation led her to working in these areas. She also trained as an analyst and worked at the Australian Human Rights Commission. She's now an academic at the University of Sydney and is a member of the Multi-Species Justice Collective. She's the author of two previous books, The Prevention of Torture and The Sins of the Nation and The Ritual of Apologies. She's a regular on Radio National's The Minefield with Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens and The Philosopher's Zone. And she's also written for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Guardian and The Conversation. Welcome, Danielle. Thanks, Rosemary. It's really wonderful to be person to person in I know, and not on a screen. Mm. <laughs> I was going to give our audience an overview of your powerful book, but it is so personal and so unique and wide-ranging. And I thought I might ask you to do that, Danielle. And, and I thought I should also mention that this conversation is going to revisit the trauma of that summer or that winter summer, winter autumn summer. The, the fires did start in, in September 2019. So if, if this could impact you uh, while you're listening, please take care of yourself uh, you may find some elements distressing. So, look, thanks, Danielle. If you could give us an overview of the book, that I, you know, that would be wonderful. Thanks, Rosemary. Well, of course, the overview that you give of your own book is always an overview from where you're sitting now. Uh, as you said, uh, I'm a philosopher and I work at the intersection of environmental justice, animal justice and human justice, or what we call multi-species justice. Uh, but I also live on the south coast of New South Wales in an intentional multi-species community. So we try and live in a way that the river and the soil and the native animals and the domestic animals with whom we live and the human beings can all flourish living together. And we moved there about five years ago and one of the reasons that we moved to this place is because it's a rainforest and rainforests, the remnant rainforests of the south coast are really precious parts of our ecology and they are also in a very fire-ravaged country. We have thought of them as being safe spaces. And then in October 2019... Dorigo started to burn, the Gondwana rainforest. 
And although I have thought a great deal about the climate catastrophe, I work in that area, I crossed a threshold at that point and it moved from what I thought was my knowing but what is still an abstract knowing to a very concrete knowing for me. And I knew that the abstract future had become the concrete present. And then in the months that followed, the fire moved to the south coast. The Karawan fire was burning south of us for several weeks and we were in this waiting game of when it was going to cross the Shoalhaven River because we're north of the Shoalhaven River. And I became aware that this safe space, what I had assumed was a safe space, was no longer a safe space. And as I say, in, in summertime, safety was one of the casualties of the black summer fires, although, as you say, they weren't just the summer fires. And so we evacuated uh, those animals who we could evacuate. Uh, obviously, the wild animals were left vulnerable. And on New Year's Eve of 2019, in the morning, one of the pigs with whom I lived who had been evacuated to Cabago was killed when the fires came there. And I wrote what became the beginning of summertime. I was in a state of rage and anguish about my experience of what those of us, many of us who were in the face of this catastrophe mm. were experiencing. Meanwhile, the New Year's Eve fireworks were being prepared in Sydney. And so in the midst of the fires, I wrote three pieces. I wrote one about New Year's Eve. I wrote one about Omnicide, which is what I call the killing of everything. And I wrote one about Jimmy, Katie's brother, who survived the fire coming back to us and being in the trauma and the grief of having survived that fire and lost his sister and it occurred to me when I was invited to write the book that I found myself at this very unusual intersection of someone who works on these issues full time, who is a philosopher and who has thought for many years about questions of what it means to live an ethical life and of someone who wasn't just abstracted from it mm. but who lived it. And so I tried to write a book that was directly about what it was like to live with others through this catastrophic event at the same time as stepping back and forth, back into the bigger picture of what it meant for us, what it means for us, and then back into the experience. So the book is trying to convey the immediacy of the fires, the fact that it wasn't just human beings who were experiencing it, it was trees and it was soils and it was animals who were having a very direct experience of it and also to speak the truth of what it means and the truth is very difficult to speak. It is a terrifying truth and all of us approach it, we come up to it and then we, we shrink back because it's overwhelming. 
And so what I'm trying to do in the book, I've come to think of it as putting my arm around a reader and saying, come walk with me into our lives of what was going on and let's look together as vulnerable vulnerable beings in the face of this, but let us try and look together so that we can be in the truth and think as best we can about how ought we to live with mm-hmm. what's going on in front of us. So that's how I think about summertime. It's interesting because the book does focus on that real day-to-day challenge, the fear, the logistics of, of, of preparing for this encroaching fire. And you write about, and, and, and we can relate to this because I think we're all victim of this, a kind of magical thinking mm-hmm. around those fires, around uh, climate catastrophe. I mean, you, you were thinking, a lot of us were thinking the fires wouldn't burn so close to the coast. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't burn cleared paddocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could move your animals into safe pastures. Mm-hmm. And you realised that you were under underprepared for what was unfolding, that, you know, you, all of those ideas you held on to were, were, weren't the truth. You know, you were, you were sort of pushing the truth, the reality of the situation away. That was so much the case. And it's very humbling, actually, because... You think of yourself or I think of myself as being someone who knows what's going to happen and yet we still, you know, I still lived within this illusion that somehow I was protected, we were protected, there was somewhere safe to go. You know, so at a certain point uh, someone from the RFS who also is very experienced with animals came up to our property and said, you know, if you if you open a gate in this fence and you get rid of, you know, these these piles of wood, then your animals will be safe in these paddocks. And then what we saw was animals were just dropping dead because there was no oxygen when the fire burnt all around. And so literally in, you know, I didn't sleep for several weeks in the middle of the night of the 27th of December. I just thought everybody has to go. Everybody who can go has to go. And even then, where they went wasn't safe. You know, two days later, a fire was in a place that we had assumed was a safe place for them to go. And that experience spoke to me not just about that experience, but it spoke to me about the way in which we move from one island of illusion of safety to another island of Mm. illusion of safety. And the destabilisation that that brings to those of us who have lived in not only the, the stability of the Holocene, but the stability of the last 50 years, which for privileged people in the West has been one of not being at war, not being exposed to the type of catastrophes that previous generations have been. And I'm speaking about just a slice of human beings because, of course, lots of human beings have been disenfranchised and vulnerable in a a range of ways. And so here we find ourselves coming face-to-face, not only with particular events, 
but with a future which is here now and so radically different to the one that we know how to live in. And so the fires raised this question of what does it mean to live not knowing what the next summer is going to be like? What does it mean to live well when you no longer can hold on to the illusion that we are going to be able to keep ourselves safe? And I I say that at the same time as being committed to everything that we can do, everything politically, economically, technologically, socially that we can do to mitigate the unfolding climate catastrophe. But we cannot, I do not think we cannot afford to hold on to the idea that we are going to find a solution that is going to avoid mass death. There is already mass death. There is already extinction. And so what I'm, what I, the cry of the book is let us stand together on this ground where we are now. I want to be able to look at other people. I want other people to be able to look at me and say, here we are, you know, as if, you're, you know, when I was, when I was 15, my grandmother was dying and those were the days where people didn't tell old people if they had cancer, they would keep it from them. And I look at this moment in a similar way that we're not willing to look at each other and say, there is dying going on, let us hold each other in this moment with all the intention of doing what we can to save what we can, but let us be together in the truth of this moment because that is where we are. And to live now means to live in the truth of this moment. And as you said, Rosemary, it's not just a story of grief. It's also a story of love and it's a story of what it means every day to care about the beings around you. You know, there's a, a story that I tell in the book of that morning when I woke up and it was like, okay, the animals have to get out. And I put a message out on the local Facebook groups. Three hours later, there were three trucks on our property, people who I had never met in my life, I still don't know their names, who came to be there not only for me but for the animals to get them to places that were as safe as could possibly be. And that is, I'm not telling, I don't, I don't believe in stories of heroism, but there is this weaving together in what we're going through at the moment of grief and rage and loss and love and realising what it is that we care about that is also an opportunity to have a type of emotional transparency that may provide us with the type of resources of the soul that I think we need in order to go forward. Sometimes, sadly, it seems to be that this is the way that we humans are, that it's only when what we love is threatened that we, we realise how much we love it. And so I... I want people like, as has happened to me and many others, I want us to come to terms with how much we love this 
And we did see that. I, I, it blew my mind after the fires how many people were broken in half by the number of animals who were mm. killed. I mean, three billion. It's it's an incomprehensible loss. I, I you know I I think of it. Um, you know, I do a lot of bushwalking and. You know, just in a snapshot, you can see a butterfly, a, a leech, you can see a wallaby, a parrot, uh, all within a glance if you're in a beautifully sort of forested area. And to multiply that to the extent that, you know, the loss that happened during those fires, three billion, I, I, everything from worms to koalas to uh, ants to frogs. It, I, And I don't think we've processed it. I think the pandemic came in over the top of it and I mean it's a great relief to many people I think that they didn't cross over so much that we didn't have the pandemic on top of those fires but I I wonder if we we've let go of a bit of it because that reflection that um, the impact the fires had because we've been so distracted by this other extraordinary uh, effect, you know, impact, the predicament that's affected the globe. Uh, and I wonder if it's been a distraction. I think we have, if, if we remember back to February 2020, everybody was talking about the fires. There was the Climate Emergency Summit in Melbourne, you know, institutions, organisations, communities, everybody was talking about the fires. And then, snap, we went into COVID. So... I think that there's a great deal of unmourned mourning that still needs to happen. And at the same time, as you say, it is unmournable. It is beyond mourning. And there's also something important about seeing the proximity of the catastrophes because this is what climate catastrophe is, mm. is that it's one on top of the other and that is another part of it that we need to start to get our heads around, that it's not just going to be, okay, we'll just put that one on hold because I'm dealing with this one. We are, we are going to be dealing with multi-systemic breakdown and that demands something of us that I don't know that we realise is going to be demanded of us or we are yet up to being demanded of. I want to go back to what you said about the three billion. It's it's an important number because it gives people a sense of the gargantuan scale. But I'm also wary of numbers that are so gargantuan that we can't get our heads around them. And so there's a there's a part in the book where as I was writing, I was thinking, well, how would, I, how would I come to terms with this? How would I start to make this visceral? How, how do I move from an abstraction to something that my body can understand? And so I did this little kind of back-of-the-envelope calculation that if we spent 10 seconds on every one of those animals, and 10 seconds is nothing, right? 10 seconds, mm. that form of life that had those relationships and then it died. That form of life who had those relationships and then it died. That would take 970 years. Doing nothing, nothing but that, not having a glass of water, not going to the bathroom, 
And that is just these fires that summer in this country. And so those of us who are storytellers or artists, I think part of what we're trying to do is bring onto a human scale what is beyond the human scale. That's the power of story, right? That's the power of story is that it allows us as readers, as listeners, to to walk around worlds, to imaginatively walk around worlds that are otherwise unimaginable for us. And again, if I think about what I was trying to do in summertime, maybe it's a vain hope, but I, I don't want it to be the case that everyone has to have the fire at their door before they have a visceral understanding of what is happening. And so perhaps it is through telling stories to each other about this is what it was like, this is what it felt like, this is what it tasted like, this is what I woke to in the morning, this is what the animals around me were experiencing perhaps by telling those stories in these intimate ways, then we as a community of, we're all storytellers, Mm. everybody has a story to tell. Some of us write them down and get them published. But what is it, 8 million Australians were directly or indirectly affected by the fires? Mm. That by sharing our stories, we can start to weave this felt picture this felt experience of what it is that's going on so that we can move from an old story of what the world was going to be like to the actual story of what the world is like. I'm Rosemary Nilsson and I'm speaking with Danielle Selemeyer about her book Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future. Danielle, when you turned 50, it occurred to you that it was your turn to live towards seven generations. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Mm. So my, uh, I I come from a family of um, survivors of the Shoah, of the Holocaust. My grandparents, my paternal grandparents and my father were the only ones to survive on that side and my maternal grandparents and my mother were the only ones to survive on that side of the family. And my grandfather Isaac came to Australia with Hella and John, my father, uh, as refugees. And he was an extraordinary man who sadly died when I was 15 so I didn't get to have the conversations that I would have loved to have had with him but when I became an adult and I looked at his life I realized that he had lived so that the generations that followed would have a life that was safe and for him having been on the move that meant investing in such a way that we would have the money to buy houses and to be protected in that way. And when I turned 50, as you said, I thought, it's my turn now. What does it mean for me to live responsibly for seven generations? 
And it seemed to me that it was not about money. It was about water and land. And so we moved from the city into this exquisite place where the soil is fertile beyond measure and we also started making soil. My partner makes soil mm. <laughs> and, and where there was fresh water and where we thought that future generations, and I don't just think about this in terms of biological generations, I think about those others to come, may be able to make a good life into the future. And one morning after the fires, I was hit literally like I had walked into a truck by the grief that I felt not at the fact that I would die because, you know, as much as that's difficult to face, I do think we come to a point where we understand our mortality but one of the things that allows us to tolerate our own mortality is this notion that worlds will go on, worlds that are in some way connected to our worlds, whether it's the stories that we tell or the ideas that we're part of or the land that we cultivate or the children that we bring into the world. And I suddenly thought, what if we're living into a world where we don't know that that's going to happen, where we don't have a sense not of continuity to the past but of continuity to the future and that was a dimension of unfolding climate catastrophe that hadn't struck me before and so I write in the book about Isaac the person and also Isaac the tree Isaac is a magnificent tree who I think it would take maybe eight people arms outstretched to to um to circumnavigate that tree and Isaac the tree like Isaac the person for those of you who know the way that forests work Isaac is a community of beings Isaac nurtures all of the animals who live in him and all of the trees that grow around him and the mycelium who are part of his world and when Isaac dies all of these beings will continue to flourish around him and on him and of him. And so these two beings, a human being and a tree being, represent that belief in seven generations. We don't think of trees as believing because we have a very anthropocentric understanding of believing, but trees in their own way have an investment in the future the way that people have. And so I now... Think about what does it mean to live towards seven generations when the stories that we can rightly tell ourselves about the unfolding future have been so destabilised. Mm. You mentioned responsibility uh, and, and, you know, looking to the future and those future people in, in, in you know, as you said, not necessarily biological. And you also write about you know, this understanding of shared responsibility, the responsibility we have for what happens to the land, what happens to the flora and fauna. And also, and in doing that, and I think this was a really interesting part of the book for me, you thread in this idea of, you know, our kind of assumed dominion over living things, that human beings in the hierarchy 
uh, are at the apex. I mean, we we struggle with the thought that we're not, and and the the power that comes with having that position is is often abused. How do we come to terms with embracing other other living beings? Mm. Uh, you know, as I said, you know, the leeches, the cockroaches, mm. the the wallabies, the koalas. Mm. It's much easier for us to embrace a dolphin, a whale, a, mm. a, a cuddly koala. Mm-hmm. But part of I get, I think, from the book, part of the, the the message you're trying to convey is that we have to come to terms with that dominion and 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 alter that hierarchy in the way we think and the way we act. It's a tremendously important question and there are, it's a multi-dimensional answer. Part of the answer is recognising the degree to which we are that we are superior. It's not an idea we have, it's who we experience ourselves as being. And taking a step back and seeing that that is a constructed way of understanding the world. Not even all humans understand themselves that way. There are many Indigenous peoples that see themselves as kin with other beings. And so at an ideational level, firstly to recognise that we are given by this idea and then to recognise that it could be otherwise. And then to recognise the deleterious effects that that is having on the planet and on the conditions of our own life. That we have lived off the planet. We have lived by virtue of treating every other being and many other human beings as resource for our own glorification, our own pleasure, our own growth. And that is so clearly unsustainable. If you want to take an ethical position, it's clearly unsustainable for others, but it's also unsustainable for us. So you can come at it from a commitment of recognising the rights or the, the sentience or the right to flourish of these other beings, or you can come from it from a much more selfish perspective of, we're killing ourselves by doing this because, as you say, we are entangled with other life. You know, our gut, um, the microbiome in our gut, we are now finding out is absolutely central to our capacity to think, to what we feel. To our well-being, to to our our mental health. So the idea that somehow human beings are these autonomous souls that float above everything else and are separate from it, Science is telling us that's not the case, physics, biology, philosophy. So I think as we learn more about the way in which the conditions of possibility of our own lives are grounded in other beings also having lives, hopefully we come to recognise that that it is impossible to keep on living the way that we live. But I also have another answer, that that. A lot of that is in the realm of ideas. And I'm a bit of a practice-based girl as well. You know, I think that the shape of our lives form how we think. And when we share lives with other beings, we are transformed by that. And 
part of what's happened in the last 30 years in particular is this mass urbanisation where people don't live lives with other beings. As you said, you know, if you go for a bushwalk, you encounter the butterfly and the leech. And if you camp, you sleep with them and there you are sharing a world with them. And it's out of those experiences of sharing a world with others that I think that we're transformed. It's not only by thinking about it. I don't think it's even primarily by thinking mm. about it. And increasingly the research on what is it that allows people to start to change the way that they are living in the world tells us that start if we start with what it is that people love, what is it that people are connected to? And pretty much everyone is connected to beings other than humans somehow. Whether Even if you're thinking of your pet dog or your, your dog cat. or your garden mm. or, you know, or the park that you walk in. Mm. Or the beach that you swim in. Absolutely. Or, the, you know, the ocean that you take your kids to or where you used to walk with your grandma. Start there. And connect to your love, connect to what it is that you love. And that then shows you like a mirror that you are already connected to these other beings. It's not something that we have to do. We tell ourselves this very human exceptionalist story. And maybe it's only in a small space of our lives. Maybe it's this kind of minority of what we do on the summer or what we used to do in the summer before summer came threatened that we see the seeds of like ah we are sharing with the world with these other beings and they are what makes life a good life i i actually think that it's much more from our connection with what we love than from our fear of what's going to happen is going to be what allows us to transform to the extent that we can. You refer to climate justice essayist Mary Anais Hegler, who writes, if you want to have hope, go out and earn it. How do you think we're going to be able to do that? How, how, how you know, what does that look like? I think it looks different for every one of us. It, we are all... You know, I get asked a lot, you know, what is it that people can do? Do whatever you are already doing and do it through the lens of climate justice and climate change. So, you know, if you're a teacher, do it there. If you're a healthcare worker, start to think about what does it mean for your practice. And also, you know, most of us are in some ways connected to institutions. We can all be acting within our institutions to shift their practices around fossil fuels. And, you know, everybody listening to this is a human, so you are all a voter, you are all, a, you know, all of us are citizens, all of us are part of a political community. So I think in our private lives, in our, you know, in our institutional lives and in our political lives, we can all be in action. And hope, hope is a very problematic word for me. You know, I often think of the way that hope has, hope has descended into often a type of magical thinking. Mm. 
that hope is a type of leaping across the time of action and all of the difficulty of action into a future where everything is already all right. And there is no way of getting to any future where things are potentially better than they might otherwise be without going through the road. And so, as Mary Inez Hegler says, hope is in the actions that we take. And I think that's also what people experience. when you, I've had so many conversations with people who have said, when I am standing back with climate change and climate-related catastrophe as this shadow that I don't want to look at, that is so profoundly anxiety-provoking. And it's pretty anxiety-provoking to look at it as well. But if you look at it with an eye to action, once you are in the space of acting and acting with other people, acting, you know, as part of a collective, then we start to feel differently. It doesn't mean we feel good. We all have our days of climate grief. But we are in the world in action and that creates a different way of being and hopefully also creates a different being. But I do my own experience and the experience of people that I have spoken to, whether it's in the climate movement or the human rights movement or the animal justice movement, it's being in action collectively that is a basis for a different type of hope, not a magical thinking hope, a very, you know, on the ground what is possible within these circumstances, hope. Danielle, thank you so much. Thank you. Danielle's book, Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future, is published by Penguin Random House. Thank you for listening. A reminder that new episodes of the Stories to You podcast will be available every Wednesday. You can keep up to date with festival news by following us on Facebook. You can also subscribe to our newsletter via Facebook or the website. The 2021 festival will be back. Uh, We've moved to September, September 24 to 26. I look forward to welcoming you back later this year. Take care. Stories to you.